You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Um, uh, my name is Jane Olmeyer. I'm the director of the Trinity Long Room Hub, um, and it's lovely to welcome everybody here to the Long Room Hub. I am uh, uh, I'm really, really, really thrilled this evening uh, to be able uh, just to welcome, but also to say a word or two about what we do here in the Hub. And it really is threefold. The first thing we do is we celebrate the excellence of the arts and humanities. And those of you who follow the university global rankings will realise that the arts and humanities at Trinity are the most highly ranked faculty area, not just in Trinity, but in Ireland. Uh, And we're really proud of our excellence in this space. The second thing we do is we promote multi and interdisciplinarity. And I think this evening is going to be a wonderful illustration of precisely uh, that. And uh, the third thing we do is we have a wonderful public humanities programme. And this whole series of Beyond the Book of Tales has been very much part of that programme. Um, and I'm extremely grateful to Mark Faulkner, who of course is going to be chairing Emo's uh, talk this evening, for organising it, working very uh, uh, closely with our colleagues in the library, many of whom are here this evening, and we're going to hear from our wonderful librarian in a moment. Um, But it's a great example of uh, the collaboration between um, uh, one of the research themes, it's called uh, Manuscript and Print Culture, uh, and uh, uh, the library. And so it's been so successful, actually. Uh, I think this is the eighth lecture uh, in the series that we're going to run it again next year. We haven't quite figured out who and how, uh, but Mark's looking at the floor and thinking, oh my God. but, but it really has been a, a tribute uh, uh, to Mark and, and to colleagues that it has just been uh, just a phenomenal success. And thank you all. Has anyone been to All Eight? Mark? <laughs> oh, there's a couple. Oh, great. Well, you obviously keep coming back. Those of you who haven't actually attended, we uh, obviously podcast all of these lectures. They're available on the Trinity Long Room Hub website. So please uh, feel free to, to listen to them. Um, but it will be the final event for the, for the year. Now, as I said, I'm amazed there are so many people here because I know colleagues are up to their tonsils in marking exams uh, and students are up to their tonsils in taking exams. So it just shows you uh, the power of our speaker tonight. Um, but as I say, uh, Mark will introduce him in a moment. I'm now going to hand over uh, to the librarian at Trinity College Dublin. She's the librarian and archivist, uh, Helen Shenton. Helen has been with us, I guess, four years. We were just talking. She's just been a phenomenal um, uh, a person uh, for us in the Hub uh, to work with. And she's going to make a very special presentation. So, Helen, the podium is yours. Thank you very much, um, Jane. And in fact, I had the privilege of opening this lecture series on the uh, 3rd of October, and eight uh, uh, talks later, here we are. And there are a particular um, collaboration between the library and the academy, because we have digitised the eight medieval manuscripts. We have 600 medieval manuscripts, and for this lecture series, we digitised them, and then um, 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 our scholars have, have discussed them. Um, and um, I'm absolutely delighted, um, in particular this evening, in that Mark and Imo um, are two of what I call the library ushers. So they're new usher professors, but they're particularly, they're a collaboration between, a partnership between the library and the history and the English faculty. So I'm particularly honoured to have them this evening. But we are all extremely honoured this evening because amongst us we have, you know that the talk is the Book of Armagh, we have the Dean of Armagh. Um, So this time, um, uh, about a couple of years ago, uh, the Provost of Trinity and myself, we went to Armagh, to Armagh Public Library, Armagh Robinson Library, and we signed a memorandum of understanding between Trinity College Dublin and the Armagh Robinson Library. Um, And uh, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal, beautiful library um, for anyone who wants to go. It's a fabulous collection of printed books. Um, Their treasure, I think, is, you would say, um, uh, uh, Dean Swift's own copy of Gulliver's Travels. 
um, which I was very privileged to see. Anyway, in the spirit of a memorandum of understanding, it's about opening up access to our two, um, two organisations. And so for tonight's um, uh, lecture, we have digitised the whole of the Book of Armagh, and I would like to present the Dean of Armagh, uh, Gregory Dunstan, um, with a copy of, a digital copy of the Book of Armagh. Dean, please. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to be here. Can, can I show you what Helen has just presented me with? Um, it's a great honor to receive this on behalf of Armagh Robinson Library. Because not least, you see, the library stands not a hundred yards from where the Book of Armagh was written. And you have it because the greatest of our keepers, Dr. William Reeves, when it came up for sale in the mid-19th century, bought it with his own money, resold it to the then Archbishop, John George Beresford, who presented it to Trinity. Um, we have two copies of the great Gwynne edition of 1913, one of which, when we enthrone an Archbishop, we take over to the cathedral, and when, he ask, when we ask him, will he fulfill his duty? He kisses the Book of Armagh. That's part of the part of the symbolism. So we are we, we are de we are delighted to have this, and thank you very much indeed. May I also Helen mentioned the 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 memorandum memorandum of understanding. We are delighted to have this memorandum in place. Um, the coordinators in Trinity are Dr. Lydia Ferguson from the library, and Dr. Robert Armstrong in the academy. We are not ourselves in the library scholars. We're the custodians of some wonderful riches. But we, we welcome scholars to the library to make use of the riches that we have. Ten days ago, um, a member of staff from NUI Galway was with us, delighted with what he found in the manuscript catalogue of, of, of um, Viscount Conway's library that was burnt in 1641. But we have the catalogue and a few of the books that remain. Um, your own Dr. Edward McParland came to us about 18 months ago and um, opened our eyes to the riches of the Thomas Robinson collection, um, a wonderful 18th century collection, including a first edition palladial. Um, and we've added to our knowledge of that since. These are the kind of riches that we have, and we'd be delighted, we're delighted to, to make every, offer you every assistance in coming and exploring it further. Thank you so much, Helen. Thank you, everybody. Thank you uh, very much for that wonderful history of the Book of Amar, and it's now time to hear something of what's on that memory stick. Uh, Helen has already introduced Imo and I as the library ushers, that is ushers with two S's rather than one. And um, Imo is the usher in early medieval Irish history. Uh, he's an incoming IRC laureate. Uh, he is widely published on medieval science and particularly on the intellectual culture of Ireland in the 7th and 8th centuries. And it's therefore difficult to imagine anyone better placed to talk to us about the book of Ireland tonight. Thanks, Mark. Thank you very much. Uh, let me just start the PowerPoint. Um, I start with disagreeing with Mark. I <laughs> see quite a few people in the crowd who would be uh, more suited to talk about the book of Omar. I actually do think that uh, for every single slide that I have uh, uh, in this presentation, there's a specialist in the crowd who would know more than myself. So I'm looking really forward to the questions, and I may just direct the questions then to some other people. <laughs> um, 
let me begin with when Mark asked me uh, if I want to contribute, I said, uh, of course, yeah, it's a, it's the, the whole lecture series was a beautiful idea right from the start, from its conception. And when he asked me which uh, manuscript would you like to talk on, I said, well, the first reflex was the Book of Amman. Then I reconsidered and thought of Jürgen Ulrich will be giving a more detailed talk, I suppose, in two weeks' time, for example. Um, there are other people who do it, uh, who have uh, the Book of Amman as kind of their research projects, which I do not. Uh, but Mark said, oh, no, give us an historian's perspective on that, and that's what I do now. So uh, I want to start with, as you can see from the title, Beyond the Book of Kells, the Book of Amar. <coughs> so I have to start with the Book of Kells, I suppose. So these are images from the Book of Kells, and uh, just to give you a bit of background to um, what our interest is in the Book of Amar, but also obviously other uh, um, manuscripts, what we try to do as early medieval historians is to reconstruct that lost society, if you like. So the Book of Kells for us is important because of the art historical design of it and, and the art historical features. And here, for example, you see a depiction of a, uh, an Irish warrior uh, at around the, the, the uh, time 800. So for that, that is uh, fascinating for us as um, historians. If you would be a biblical historian, you would be interested in the text as well, the Gospels. Um, but other than it's, it's um, what we are principally interested in are not the texts that are transmitted through Ireland, but the texts that were produced in Ireland. So this is what makes the Book of Amar in, in the collection that we have here special for us, because it contains texts that were composed in Ireland in the early Middle Ages, rather than just copying texts that have been produced somewhere else and transmitting that potentially to the continent. Um, for that. This is a very crude image, but I hope it will give you some sense of our problems um, in working on these things in Ireland. And I actually will start with kind of a 10-minute broader background to why the Book of Amar is so important without talking about the Book of Amar. Uh, and showing you some pictures that some of you will, will probably have, have seen in some of my talks earlier. Um, what is important is that if, you look, if you're looking for manuscripts that are close in, written close enough to the time of composition of the text. Take, just as an example, the Annals of Ulster that we have uh, here. Uh, the Annals of Ulster, the earliest entries may date from the 5th century. The copy we have uh, here in the library is from the 16th century. That is 1,000 years. So anything can happen to a text in 1,000 years. A better example still is would be the letters of Columbanus, who died in 615. There's only one copy surviving. A paper copy now in St. Gaul from the 17th century. So anything can happen to a text, obviously, in those um, uh, over 1,000 years. So the closer the copy is to the original text, the better. So we are looking for copies that are as close as possible to the original, because before the 9th century, we don't have what we call an autograph. So the handwriting of the author has not survived. So we, we are working from later copies. Um, most of them for us, uh, for this early period, before 1000, uh, are in continental script. So we go to the continent, browsing through the libraries there, to search for texts written originally in Ireland, and we hardly have anything in Ireland itself. So Irish script, it's a different category. It's, it's a difficult category. Um, Irish script can obviously be somebody who's writing in Irish script, may write in Ireland, but it could also be an Irishman traveling to the continent, getting employment there at the court of Charlemagne, writing there in his Irish hand. It does not necessarily mean that it was then written in Ireland. But still, Irish, Irish script is a, a better indicator. The chances are higher, to put it that way. But our problem is that most of the uh, manuscripts that survive in Irish script of text originally produced in Ireland date from after the year 1000, not from the early period, with two exceptions. And the talk will be about the two exceptions you will be glad to hear that one of them is the Book of Amar. Um, so just to give you an idea of what we're usually struggling with, one problem is that the manuscripts are uh, not in Irish script and not necessarily produced that, that early in Ireland. And the other one is that most of the texts are anonymous. Most of the texts in the Book of Amar are not. So we have a few saints' lives where we know the authors, and the author reveals him or her, himself in all cases, I think, uh, that I can think of for the early period. Um, but uh, most of our texts, actually, that we are working on for reconstructing this lost society, if you like, are anonymous. So we need other clues just to give you a sense of why <coughs> the Book of Amar is so special. Is because we don't need to this, do this tedious work that I'm showing you now. Um, 
it's, it's fairly brief, but just to give you an idea of um, where we go, what we do, we spend our winters in places like this. This is um, the Monastery of Einsiedeln in the Swiss Alps. Um, one of the texts that I was working on uh, is, this is what it looks like on the inside. This is Pater Odo, who unfortunately died three years back, um, taking out one of the manuscripts that I wanted to look at. This is the manuscript, um, continental script, as you can see. Um, all the, the whole text is written in Latin, except for sometimes you're lucky, you get something like this here. This is the oldest list of Irish numerals, or the oldest list of numerals in the Irish language. So completely Latin text. Sometimes you get clues about some words interspersed in the Latin text in Irish. If you find Irish words in it, you immediately get the sense, okay, the author must be Irish and the audience must be Irish. Otherwise, they could not have understood it. That gives you the sense that the text was written in Irish. Um, a nice example here, just, just to give you an idea of how it looks like. The whole page is Latin. Um, it, I will blow up this part here, but just keep in mind the whole page is Latin. I blow this part up. Um, everything is in Latin except for these four words, which are in Irish. And whenever we find this, and so we're browsing through manuscripts to get clues of what could originally be an Irish text. Here, this is uh, Mark mentioned that um, my one of my main interests is science. Here, actually, what the author is doing here, and that gives you a sense of why people did it. Um, it's there's, it's a mathematical proof that stretches over two and a half pages. And at one point, the author thinks this point is crucial. If my students don't understand this point, um, then the whole proof is, is dead and buried and lost. So he specifies a fraction, which is 5 twelfths, a very tricky fraction if you're working with um, Roman numerals. Um, so what he does here, he, exp he defines this fraction in Irish uh, with four words, matrion laguleot. So more than a more than a third, less than a half. And if you're a mathematician, uh, if you're a mathematician, it's actually it, it can't be better. That definition is just spot on because five twelve is exactly. If you, if you break it down, one third is four twelfths, um, one half is six twelfths. So five twelfths is exactly the mean value of those two um, fractions. So this is this is s clear definition as a modern mathematician, you wouldn't do it better. But this gives you a sense, so there's a teacher who's concerned about his students, um, but his language, his own mother tongue is Irish. The mother tongue of the people he's talking to is Irish. And this is why whenever it gets so complicated, he reverts back to the mother tongue of both himself and the audience. So that, that gives you then a sense, this text must have been written in Ireland, because a, a scholar, an Irish scholar on the continent would have a mixed community. Um, so there would, would be Franks in there, there would be Anglo-Saxons in there, uh, and communicating something in Irish would not necessarily work. So there, the lingua franca is Latin, and you can't go beyond Latin, really. So this is what we normally do. Um, fortunately, we don't need to do that with the Book of Amar. This is just, I, I just show you another example quickly, just to give you a sense of uh, how difficult and tedious that kind of work is. Sometimes you don't have um, Irish... Yeah, uh, Irish words in it, then you refer to basically, this, this one here is an interesting uh, one, how can I go back, sorry, um, uh, because it, it refers to an eclipse of um, the year uh, 664, 1st of May 664, and the author writes three times 30 years afterwards, in the year 754. So, um, what all you need to do then is when you have a reference to an eclipse, you go to, you, you call NASA, uh, because NASA solves all problems for you, um, and NASA produces, it's, it's freely available, two mouse clicks online, um, shows you where the total, total totality of this eclipse was visible, that is with, within this range, this red range, and total visibility, uh, or total uh, visibility of the eclipse is this blue line. And in this case, it was visible in Northern Ireland, in Northumbria, and on the continent in areas that had not yet received Christianity. So they would not have necessarily recorded it. So this gives us a, a likelihood of probability that this text was written in Ireland. So it's these kind of little clues that we're looking for, as long as we don't have an author. If we have an author's name, then we know that author's name is Irish. So we have an Irish author to a text, and then we can work from that. So the ideal situation is... If an Irish author of a text identifies himself, 
and if the text survives in a near contemporary copy, close, uh, copy in close geographic proximity. So our key example, and um, uh, I actually want to use this manuscript to contrast it with the book of uh, Amar for the first part of the talk, uh, at least. This is, the, um, there are only two manuscripts of that importance for us early medieval historians. One is in Schaffhausen in um, Switzerland. Um, this is the so-called Schaffhausen Adolfnorn. And just to give you an idea of, first of all, what we talk about when, it's, when we talk about Island, Bede has a nice phrase for that. Uh, he calls it the Regionis Gotorum, the regions of the Irish, um, which keep that in mind whenever I talk about Ireland today. It's the island of Ireland plus the southwest of Scotland. So everything that you see in uh, green here, obviously Scotland got the name from the Irish. Um, the Latin term for, for the Irish it was always Scotia, and then uh, the Scots took it over. Um, and uh, this, this manuscript and text was produced on this island of Iona. How do we know that? Because the author reveals himself in the middle of the text. Hank mihi ad of nano narratione meus decessor nostra abbas falbeus indubitanta in Arabit. So um, this um, was told to me out of none by my predecessor, Abbot. So this gives you a sense. He talks about himself, and not just in the first person singular, but he gives us his name. So we can identify him as the abbot of Iona, who died in uh, 704. Uh, in the same manuscript, um, we'll have uh, this at the end of the manuscript, and we we'll, can do similar things for the, for the uh, Book of Amar. At the end of the manuscript, less legible, I just want to um, draw your attention to the name here. The scribe reveals himself by name. So we have the author of the main text, and we have the name of the scribe, who is called uh, Dobeneo. This is obviously here the uh, Pome Dobeneo, so the ablative of Dobeneus, um, Dobene, who was abbot of Iona, in, who died in 713. So this is, we, we just love this manuscript, because the text is probably written, Jean-Michel will correct me, uh, probably written around 700, um, certainly before uh, Adolfnon died in 704. And this copy must have been produced before 713, when Dobene died. That is as close as it gets. Um, this text, unfortunately, did not, or fortunately, uh, I have to say, did not uh, stay in Ireland. Had it stayed in Iona, it would have got lost, like the entire library of Iona. Um, so that was brought fairly early, uh, presumably, uh, to the continent and now is in Schaffhausen. So whenever you make it to Switzerland, Schaffhausen is a beautiful spot, has fantastic rainfalls, um, and it has a nice library that you can just walk into and they show you the manuscript. Um, if you compare that, so this is the, the, the first page of it. Um, when I teach early medieval history, I teach... 50% of my module on the basis of these two manuscripts. Uh, one is the Schaffhausen Adolfnorn, which gives you information, loads of information about the cult of Columba. And then you have the Book of Amar, that gives you all the information you need about the cult of Patrick. So what I will be doing now is, is uh, to... to I th the two manuscripts may be interlinked. So if I can, can give some contribution, I suppose, to how to think about the Book of Amar. Um, I felt it quite helpful to think about it in comparison to this manuscript. Um, but we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, so if you think, think about this scheme again, between 600 and 1,000, we only have these two manuscripts. We have got other manuscripts, the Antiphony of Bangor and so on, but no, man, no two early manuscripts that have such prominent text um, if you think about the life of Bridget by Cogitosos, written roughly in the same time uh, at around the 670s, not a single copy in Irish script has survived. We've got more than 80 manuscripts, all of them continental. So early manuscripts in Irish script produced in Ireland, very, very rare. So this is, these two are, are our key manuscripts for teaching it. Now we come finally to the Book of Amman. 
just to give you a sense that the same thing that I just did with um, the uh, Schaffhausen out of Norm, you can obviously do with the Book of Amar. Um, here, this is um, the text that survives in two copies. One is the Book of Amar copy, which is incomplete, uh, and a second copy. This is the Life of Patrick by a guy called Murukuk. And um, here you see uh, his name here. It starts, it's one of those Irish features that you sometimes see in continental manuscripts as well. Uh, Hag Pauka um, De Sancti Patrizii Peritia et Virtuti and then you, you go into this space. Um, so here was a paragraph. You start writing here, but you, you continue on above the line and then you go back below the line. So Hag Pauka De, uh, de Sancti Patrizii Peritia et Virtuti Bus, Muruku, Maku, uh, Matheni, and so on and so on. So here, the, the author again reveals himself as Muruku, and he gives um, you his, his affiliation to his family. Um, more problematic is to get a sense of the scribe of the manuscript. So Muruku, um, if I can go back... I, Hope I have a name. Muruku writes this roughly, and keep in mind when the previous text was written. Muruku writes this roughly in 695. Adolf Norm writes probably slightly thereafter. And there is some people, uh, some scholars think there may be a connection. Um, this massive text on the cult of Patrick had to be matched by a, a substantial text on the cult of Columba. Because at the time, Patrick was, or Amar, um, sorry to say that, but Amar was not yet the most important church, um, in, or the most powerful church in Ireland. It was Iona, and the cult of uh, Columba. So uh, at this point, it may well be that Adolfman thought he needs to do something. We know that these two people met, Adolfman who wrote the Vita of um, uh, Columba, and Murku. Uh, at the Synod of Beer in, 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 in of Burr in 697. So maybe Morocco brought uh, a copy of his text under the arm, presented it to Adolf and Adolf Non immediately thought, oh damn, I now I need to sit down and uh, write something myself. Um, more problematic is the scribe, because what is very interesting about the Book of Hama, and when you look through the facsimiles, have an eye on that. Um, again, most of my talk is not, I'm not reinventing the, re the wheel. This is actually a beautiful publication from 1846, in the, in the Proceedings of the Royal Irish Academy um, um, by uh, Graves, who wanted to figure out when the Book of Amar itself was written. So the text in there, obviously earlier, they were copied by a scribe. He was looking through the Book of Amar to see if the scribe reveals himself. The problem is, are the references to the original scribe, who revealed himself throughout the Book of Amar on these folio numbers, uh, have been erased and probably 200 years later, so as to give the impression that the whole book was written by Patrick himself. So you can't then have somebody uh, giving his name and the name is not Patrick, that doesn't match up. So they wanted to have a certain antiquity for the book itself. Um, there are these erasures, and some of them extremely difficult um, to decipher, uh, and um, I'll show you now um, why. This is, this is an easy one to decipher, and this is what Graves did. Um, one of the erasures was fairly straightforward. This is what it then looks if you uh, reconstruct it. Pro Fedov Naho Oris. You should pray for Fedov um, This is basically, this happens at, uh, at the end of certain texts in the book. So the scribal activity is obviously uh, contemplation uh, for God. It's, it's, it's an act for God. Uh, and you want then the reader to pray for you. So this happens, you can't see any of the ink anymore, but um, just about as much as legible that we know the name of the scribe. Unfortunately, there are quite a few people uh, under that name, so we, do not, we did not necessarily know which of these was that. Um, then what um, Grace really reconstructed brilliantly Unfortunately, he was the only one to do it, and nobody can do it afterwards, because how he described it uh, in 1846, he said, by the use of this, the person who wrote the summary, by the use of a weak, I'm not sure how weak it was, a weak solution of Gallic acid in spirits of wine, Mr. Graves revived the traces of the original writing a good deal. So now it's gone. Right? So he could see it. 
Um, but it damaged the manuscript in that, that part so heavily that we can't reconstruct it anymore. This is what he reconstructed. The language is Latin. The uh, letters are Greek. So what's happening here basically is, you see that in, and I'll go back now to the Schaffhausen Adolfnorn, Latin text here, this is the end of the second book, which the author writes in Latin, but in Greek, um, in, in Greek letters. This reads, finitur secundus uh, liber. So it's, it's interesting that both scribes do it. Dorbene does it in, before 713. Um, in Raw in 807, 807 does the same thing. So a Latin word, but with Greek uh, letter forms, probably just to give it authority. Um, but I, I leave that to the specialists. Um, so if you reconstruct then these Greek letters, this is what Graves came up with. Uh, and the important aspect was he does not, he did not only get Ferdovnach out of this uh, um, section, but also Torvach. And Torvach is the heir of Patrick. Being the heir of Patrick, you needed to be the abbot of Amar. And we know that there was only one Torvach um, who was the heir of Patrick in the early period. And he had, fortunately, his abbacy was just one year. Mm -hmm. So it must have been written in this one year between 807 and 808. So this is how the uh, date of the Book of Amar is reconstructed, which you can't do yourself anymore because of the acid, unfortunately. So you need to trust this, um, uh, this publication. There was a re there's a reason why I give you the screenshots of the publication. So I always tell my students, uh, no, it is worth... Um, looking at literature that is older than 20 years. Uh, this is a really nice example. So if you really want to understand how somebody reconstructed this, this is still the authoritative publication, obviously, which has been repeated and repeated and repeated afterwards, but nobody has come up with additional arguments for the dating. So um, 1846, um, freely available online. So um, you have a look and, and uh, follow that. Um, this is not where the story of the book of Amar ends, so, uh, and I, I will talk about the composition itself uh, in a second. Um, there's one extremely famous and interesting glass in it, um, which you, if you look at the full page here, um, you immediately see that this script here is different to the rest. The rest is, it is, I mean, it's, it's um, how many folios is the, the full thing? A hundred, and uh, I, I will, will see it in a second. It's a, it's a big book, apparently written by only one scribe. That is, that is quite exceptional for the early period. Uh, but then there is, this is an edition produced in, in the year 1005 when Brian Baru visited Amar, it's a famous passage, and unfortunately here, I'm not sure if this is the water damage or uh, the acid we talked about, um, must, it's probably water, uh, so you can only just about uh, make the Briani, which is the genitive uh, out here, uh, but the important aspect for us historians of this uh, clause is he's not just called Brian, but uh, Imperatoris Scotorum, after all, Emperor of the Scots. So whenever you're working on hiking ship and so on, this is your first real reference to hiking ship uh, or to the reality of hiking ship. There was the ideal of hiking ship in Ireland before, and this is the first um, real person who probably wielded power over the entire island of Ireland. Uh, which you'll find in the Book of Amar. So for him, and this is uh, for the uh, people from Amar, a very important clause because what Brian basically um, says there is that Amar should be um, the central church for the entire island of Ireland. So the, the, um, whenever you have a problem, even in Munster, where Brian Rue was from, uh, and you can't resolve it in Munster, uh, the highest uh, canon law uh, authority is Amar, and this is what this clause is about. So... Um, this is how the two cults, and if you would compare the two manuscripts and see their kind of history together, uh, you really get a sense of maybe they even interacted. I, I never thought about that before, but now because I thought, uh, well, if I want to put the Book of Amman into context, um, the Schaffhausen Adolfnorn is the only other example that is of, of the same value to us as historians. If you think of how the cult of Patrick developed versus the cult of Columba. Uh, quite a, a bit of what I'm saying now is, is highly debatable. Uh, it starts with the death of Patrick. 
Um, so the range is from 420 to 500. Some of my, all of my first years uh, had to deal with the essay question, when did Patrick die? Uh, which they found extremely difficult to answer. Um, so you've got this range, but then you have no reference to Patrick before the year 632, which is interesting in itself. As long as the, the question there is whether the references in the um, annals are contemporary or not, uh, I leave that to the um, specialist on the annals, um, but that is debatable. Uh, otherwise, the first reference to Patrick um, is in uh, a very interesting document, Kungen's letter, our chief um, document for the Easter controversy in 7th century Ireland, surviving only one 12th century copy uh, now in the British Library. So that gives you again a sense of, of uh, uh, where we are looking for our text. Um, Parallel to that, so Patrick died earlier than Columba, that's, that's the, the most important aspect there. But the cult of Columba was put into writing a lot earlier than the cult of Patrick. Um, here's the first reference, interestingly not in the Amar area, but um, Kumian was from southern, the southern half of Ireland. So um, Kumian was turning to Roman practices while Amar was still following Celtic practices. Um, but it seems, and this gives you uh, another sense of our frustration, um, both Adolf and then the uh, hagiographers of Patrick say that they are working on models. We know that there was a text written by a certain Kumene who was abbot of Iona, and there was a text by a certain Ultan who was the teacher of Tyrakon who later writes The Life of Patrick. Those two texts are lost. But we know that the hagiography on these people started around the 640s it seems roughly at the same time. So again, is that coincidence or not? I'm not quite sure. Um, then Tyrakon and Miroku write their lives of Patrick in the 680s and 690s, immediately followed by Alofnon to write his, uh, what is, this is probably the life of Columba, uh, because it has so many historical <laughs> details, is, is our most important source for 7th century Ireland. I don't think there's an exaggeration uh, involved here. But what, when it, where the Book of Amar comes in again. These are the texts that are included on Patrick. Um, it's written actually at a time when Iona is in massive decline. So if, again, maybe I read too much into this, but the first Viking raids of Iona, and you've seen it on the map, it's an island. Um, the first Viking raids are in 802. In 806, um, 68 members of Iona are killed by the, the Vikings. That's what the annals uh, tell us. In 817, uh, Iona is abandoned. So it seems that at this time when Iona is really struggling for survival, this is the time when the Book of Amar is produced. Whether that is a coincidence or not, I leave it to you, but it could well be saying that, yeah, for the past 200 years, uh, you were the most important uh, church, but by now, certainly, um, uh, God has given you his vengeance uh, through the Vikings, and we are now the most important church. And it, it was, was an, if you compare the two cults, a very appropriate time to write this book. Um, what's in the book? Um, what we call the dossier of Patrick, the two important, most important texts are the two lives of Patrick. So the legendary Patrick, as you know it from, from the textbooks or the Wikipedia entries uh, or uh, anything else, um, that is the Patrick of what we call, um, we still use the terminology, unfortunately, the Amar propagandists. So people who in the uh, 680s, 690s tried to promote the cult of Patrick and make the claim for Amar being the uh, principal church in Ireland, which in reality it was not at the time. So that was a claim made which um, only materialized 100 years later. Um, but un unlike the Schaffhausen Adolfman, which has only one text, here you've got more than text on Patrick. The text on Patrick are followed by the complete New Testament. So think about the Book of Kells again. The Book of Kells is only the Gospels. This is the complete, and I think it's the only complete New Testament um, um, among the uh, biblical manuscripts uh, in Irish script for the, in the early period. So all the others are principally gospel books. Here you've got the full um, New Testament. Uh, and, and this is interesting as well, it's followed by a dossier on Martin of Tours by Sulpicius Severus. Why is that? Because the life of St. Martin is the model for any saint's life. So this, this, this became the copies. Uh, if you look for bestsellers, 
Um, this is the bestseller of the entire Middle Ages, and certainly all of the, uh, or most of the early saints' lives are based on this text. So it makes sense to have that text in there. Still, and I will we'll finish the talk in uh, five minutes on the question of why are these three parts together? Um, that's, that's still something that I can't really get my head around. Um, there are various theories about it, but we'll talk about that in, in uh, five minutes. So what we are interested in as historians is obviously the life, if you are interested in late, the transition period from late antiquity into the early Middle Ages, Martin of Tours uh, lived in the late 4th century. Um, Sulpicius Severus was a disciple of his. He wrote his life of Martin of Tours while Martin was still alive, which is uh, extremely exceptional. So if you're interested in late 4th, early 5th century history, um, this is a very important copy of the text. It's one of the oldest, and it has unique features. Um, if you are interested in uh, 7th century Ireland, this is the part of the manuscript you're looking at. If you are a biblical scholar, because it's the uh, only complete New Testament of the, old, uh, of the early period, uh, written in Irish script, uh, if you want to know which Bible did, uh, did the Irish have in the 7th and 8th century, then you look at this part of the manuscript. This one is obviously the one I teach, obviously, because I teach uh, not continental history, but Irish history. Um, and if you look at those contents, um, this is just the list of what's there, and it's actually, um, I always love to tell my students, um, for the early period, it's always important to think what's there, but it's equally important to think what's not there. The sounds of silence uh, are extremely important. So what you have here is, uh, and this is some, sometimes I give this to, to my first years and say, okay, uh, this is the list of the text in the dossier of, on, on St. Patrick. Murukku and Tirokon are the principal texts, then you have certain editions, then you have a very interesting and important text, which is not that famous, uh, the Liber Angeli, and then you have one text by Patrick himself. And this is where the patrician scholars immediately pause and think, yeah, well, but wait a minute, pa two texts of Patrick survive, not just one. Why is there only one text in here? You, are, you have what we call Patrick's Confession, and the letter to the soldiers of Caroticus. Um, the, uh, that they were both written by Patrick is in no doubt. Uh, Heinrich Zimmer had his theory uh, in the 1880s, which he then reversed in the 1890s, that, that this may be a forgery, but uh, they are accepted since as uh, original text. There are two texts, one of them is not in here. And the one text that is in there is a short version of it. It's not the full text. So the question there is what's going on, and what is extremely re revealing is this is the beginning of Patrick's confession. Ego, Patricius, uh, Peccato, blah, 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 I, Patrick, Sinner, and so on, um, is headed by the heading Incipiunt Libri. Here begin the books, plural, but that is only one book. Uh, it's not two. It's not both texts, it's just one. So that immediately gives you a sense, okay, um, that person deliberately, he, he, he copied what he had in front of him. Then he wrote a short version of the first text, and he omitted the second text. Why would he do that? Um, various theories by various people. Uh, I did not talk about historiography. Uh, I haven't talked about historiography yet. Um, just to give you uh, well, the historiography on, uh, on uh, Patrick is just massive. I just introduced you to four key players and that the, the person who really kicked it off is this German guy who I'm not related to him, even though we're both German <laughs> and we look similar. Um, this is Heinrich Zimmer, who is the first professor of Celtic studies uh, anywhere in the world. Uh, he, had, he got that chair in 1900 in Berlin. Um, he had... So, I just introduced the, the, the people briefly. Heinrich Zimmer is called... Um, Jürgen and Jean-Michel know that a lot better than myself, the Ishmael of Celtic studies. He never wrote anything positive about anybody, and he always only wrote against people. Um, so he, all his theories are, he read something and he thought, this is rubbish, and he wrote against it. That is, that is his principal method of working, but extremely powerful writer, and um, very interesting thoughts. Um, he kicked off patrician studies, if you like, because uh, Bury, whom you see here, who had uh, what is James' chair now, he had that chair for a while uh, here at Trinity, um, he wrote 
still probably the biggest account and the most authoritative account on St. Patrick, uh, a biography on St. Patrick, um, published in 1905, um, a 600-page strong book on Patrick, which um, Bury really only um, wrote as a reaction to Zimmer's theories, because Zimmer, Zimmer came up with a theory, St. Patrick never existed. <coughs> that didn't go down well on this subject, <laughs> obviously. So he wrote the, um, um, bio the authoritative biography on Patrick. And actually, I, I still need to find, if somebody's in the room who wants to finance, I only need one or two thousand euros on something that I discovered uh, two years ago in Berlin. Uh, Heinrich Zimmer has written an even longer biography of Patrick, which he never published which is now in his papers, buried in his papers in Berlin. And nobody has opened that envelope since I opened, uh, until I opened it uh, two years ago, um, because um, Zimmer's library was burned in 1903. Um, it has, the, all, all the edges are, are um, um, what do you call it? Exactly. So once I opened it, um, parts of these immediately fell apart. So we can't open open the, it's loose letters, we can't open them frequently. What we need now, because it's an important piece in the, hist in the historiography of, of Patrick, we need to scan it immediately. Uh, they would not let me do pictures, unfortunately, on the day uh, in the library. They say, no, 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 uh, we'll scan it professionally. Uh, you provide us with the money. So I still need to find, uh, I think, yeah, 2,000 is what I need, but it will be um, very, very important. It's, it's an important document uh, to understand Bury's first production because he wrote against Zimmer. And it's actually quite interesting. There are ideas in there that Zimmer has not published otherwise. Um, and we need to uh, get a sense of, of um, what he thought about Patrick at the time. So Bury wrote, wrote against him. Then the authoritative um, uh, editions of um, the patrician text in the Book of Amar is now that by Ludwig Bieler, a very interesting scholar. Uh, himself, who fled Austria when the Nazis uh, occupied uh, or the Anschluss in 1938, he immediately left and then found a new home in Ireland. Uh, and then Dan Vinci, who wrote um, the the key uh, essay, an essay of 175 pages <laughs> uh, on Patrick and his biographers, uh, ancient and modern. Uh, Dan Vinci is an interesting character, as, a, as a, he was a diplomat in. Uh, uh, Germany before the, uh, Hitler came to power, and then in fascist Italy as well. So uh, interesting figures in, in themselves. Um, they have four different interpretations of why the confession of Patrick is in, there in a short version. One idea is, okay, the exemplar that they worked from was defective. So they just didn't have the full text. So they basically copied what they had. Um, that's what uh, Zimmer uh, argued. Um, then Bury said, well, Bury basically said, whatever Zimmer says can't be right. So I have to come up with a different uh, uh, interpretation. Um, he believes it's a rush copy. So somebody who was just not careful enough, he left out certain paragraphs and then continued on and forgot the letter in the end. Um, then um, uh, Bieler thought it may have been just the first draft that was expanded on afterwards. And this is the oldest first draft. And then what uh, I think most scholars believe now is what Dan Vinci said, it's deliberate omissions. So if you write propaganda text on Patrick, certain parts in that text are not really, uh, you, you would not really want uh, the world to read those. And if you look at the, the, the paragraphs that are missing, is a legal case against Patrick, for example. It's Patrick talking about his youthful sins. Um, Patrick uh, is being con considered ignorant by others. Um, uh, there is this accusation, certainly an indirect accusation of simony um, that he, he mentions. So these are not very favorable to the man. So there, there could be a reason why you leave that out. And the same actually, and I won't go uh, into this now, um, the same can be said about the, the, the whole epistola. And this is just, and you don't need to read through it, I should not have put it actually. Um, but the whole epistola, the letter to the soldiers of Caroticus, is basically, he is writing to an open letter to a slave trader. Um, begging the slave trader to release or at least not harm the Christians that he stole from his flock to sell them off to other countries. Now, if you want to present Patrick as a powerful saint, certainly um, not being able to 
um, stand up against a slave trader who, who collects your, your flock and sells it off in, in, in serfdom uh, does not go down well with, with the kind of Patrick that they wanted to present. So there's, there's logical reasons of leaving that out, but it's quite interesting that of the two texts that we know that Patrick wrote himself, and we know that they had, uh, they, one is in, in abbreviation, or uh, is in a bridge version, and the other one is uh, missing completely. And we only have continental copies for that, so that gives you a sense as well then how, how that survives. Um, this is the final aspect of the talk, just to give you a sense again of what's in there, and this is something that I just... I, I was then curious, obviously. Um, there are three parts of this manuscript. One is the, the dossier of Patrick, um, one is the complete New Testament, and one is the, what we call the dossier uh, on Martin of Tours by Sulpicius Severus. Um, they are separate parts, so... Um, the, 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 the choirs end with a text, so they could easily have been three different books bound together at a different point, but the references, the scribe reveals himself through all three parts. So all three parts are written by the same man, for sure. Um, how was this then pieced together? Um, this is now uh, Gwyn, and you referred to, to Gwyn already. Uh, Gwyn believes that the way that this works, the, the one thing that, that, that re I really couldn't get my head around is um, there's a complete New Testament, but not in the order that we know it. And everybody knew it. This is a highly unusual order. The Acts, any New Testament ends with the Apocalypse, the Revelations. It does not end with the Acts. So you need to, you need to explain that. And I, I think actually, I, I, first I thought um, if I was in Amar in 807, and I would commission this book, the way I would do it is I would start with the New Testament. I, I, well, that's probably because I'm a historian and I like chronology. Uh, I would start with the New Testament. I would go into Martin of Tours uh, and then have the Darcy on Patrick. So just to have a, have a chronological lead up to that. It's not happening. So they start with Patrick, which makes sense because that, those are the most important texts. But why are the Acts not where they should be after the Gospels? And so on. So, um, Wynne has an interesting piece. He believes that what is in green here are the texts that were written first. Then, the texts in yellow were written second. Then, actually, there's a very interesting Murukhu's text does not start with a list, of, with a table of contents. The table of contents, uh, so I think Murukhu's text ends on uh, folio 8 or something like that. The table of contents is on folio 20. That is one of, one of the oddities in that manuscript. Why is that? Various theories. Maybe he forgot it. Uh, maybe he had a more complete copy later on, and this is when he wanted to include it. But that's what, what Gwyn believes. So these texts first, then he gets the, the uh, table of contents of Miracle, and then finds more texts that are important, and at the same time he writes the Gospels. Um, I still don't know, and then he would attach that to this part, I still don't understand why he would not then continue from the Gospels to the X, uh, and then continue it on why the X are placed where they are placed, but uh, maybe the biblical scholars uh, can help me out there, and then this is supposed to be the last uh, part that's written. But certainly, again, for the patrician material, think about um, the letter to the soldiers of Corotticus is not there, the confession is in an abridged version, and Murakou's text is in two parts, more or less the full text, but then the table of contents later, um, there's a lot for you to think about about the composition of this text, and I think we we'll leave that now for the questions. Thank you.